Welcome, one and all, to your Hawkeye podcast by Fantastic Geek, the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me, as always, is Pete. Hello, Pete. I was born careful. The Hawkeye podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode three, Echoes, is brought to you by Batman Auto Repair. I wonder who's fixing those cars. Well, Pete, I have to hand it to you, seeing as how we see a mysterious hand in this episode, uh, for setting the table at this point in the podcast last week. Um, Pete, I I feel glad that what, what was a whispered rumor, whose name we dare not say, uh, was discussed a bit in the podcast last week, since, uh, Pete, this week there are there are lesser discussions going on saying, is it or isn't it? And I think all our listeners know it is. I will take no bows. I will merely point to Vincent D'Onofrio's Twitter, where on Wednesday a cryptic poem was posted uh, about keeping your mouth shut, which then pressed on that, he said, uh, has nothing to do with any job right now. So read into that what you will. Um I especially enjoyed in your poll tweet this week, familiar laugh, because um, I didn't catch the laugh on first viewing when little Maya's cheek is squeezed by um, what can only be described as meat hooks uh, from the uh, unseen, uh, mostly unseen owner of said massive hands. So, like everybody else, looking forward to what the next installment brings. And Pete, have to give a big shout out to new listener Liam, who has been enjoying the Hawkeye series through the descriptive audio track. And uh, we love that we can be adding to his Marvel fun when he downloads the podcast each week. So, welcome aboard, Liam. Thanks for listening, Liam, and uh, hope you're enjoying the show. Let's go through our run, run recap. After the Marvel Studios logo in 2007, a ponytailed girl sits in a classroom as the voices of chattering children fade around her. She reads a few words on her teacher's lips and opens her writing workbook as classmates raise their hands to participate. She instead starts to work rousing the attention of the teacher who comes over to check on Maya to get her to pay attention, but finds she's more than up to the task of her work. We have in the camera work here uh, slow and deliberate shot choices, I think meant to show the imperfect nature of uh, Maya's educational setting. Uh, We also see through the camera work, also through the acting of the... uh, the actress playing the teacher, kind of a lack of confidence from the teacher, but then surprise uh, at Maya's extreme intelligence. All of this presented in a really cinematic way, um, and and one kind of you know befitting the the topic and whatnot. Later, she's with her father, and we get some exposition regarding the lack of money to send her to a deaf school, as well as talk of dragons, dragons that may be real in a different world. Pete, I had to pinch myself. Is this really the same MCU where Shang-Chi takes place 
yes, it is. I, I, I don't mean to overly uh, contrast here. You know, I think back to the the Marvel Netflix days where it's gotta be the same because Jeff Loeb says so. Instead here, it's just treated with a sense of wonder where, you know, we just watched Shang-Chi and those dragons and believed in them just a handful of weeks ago. This story feels like somewhere else, but we know that it is in that umbrella of the MCU. And it's just, it just reminded me of the wonder of this storytelling device. That is this multifaceted MCU. I mean, my heart absolutely swells with the expectation that Maya and Katie will ride a dragon together at some point in this cinematic universe. Uh, absolutely. And I think adding to the power of this scene is uh, young actress Darnell Besaw, who really uh, is stealing the show here. We have her presence continue when she's at karate, where she is told to rely on herself to use her size and speed as uh, as positives. Oh, and Uncle will take her home, a man too large to be seen on screen. Pete, a man with a penchant for cufflinks, may I mm-hmm. point out. Yeah, pinches her cheek here before chuckling. Uh, the karate teacher tells Maya... Uh, to come up to face the boy who won his first match. He eyes her prosthetic right foot. So how we see this introduced for the first time, he kind of rolls his eyes, going to go easy on her, but she quickly turns the tables on him. And I know when I was watching this episode for my second time, uh, first time for my wife and daughter, uh, you know, my wife was like, essentially, she said, I'm I, I, I don't fully get how the story wants me to believe how someone with a prosthetic could be so so apt on their feet. Well, the story cuts to adult Maya. Uh, let's not forget that um, uh, Alequa Cox herself uh, has a prosthetic leg seen as part of the character, but also in real life. There she is kicking butt. And if you want to say, all right, well, I'm going to analyze this uh, this wide shot. Uh, where she spins this way and that, I'm going to say, that's a that's a stunt person, or that's a this, that. Okay, fine. There's no doubt in my mind in this adult Maya scene here uh, <laughs> that the character and the actress is more than capable to, to mop the floor with just about anybody who comes her way. Yeah, and Maya quickly MMAs this guy into submission at night. She pulls up on a motorcycle to the aforementioned Fat Man Auto Repair, where she sees a man with a sword attacking those inside. It's the Ronin, and she recklessly enters just in time to see her father stabbed as Ronin breaks through a window and escapes. He tells her to leave, but she refuses, and he says he's already gone tells the little dragon to fly away. He presses a blood-stained hand to her cheek as she dies. And I think the only complaint I have about this episode is that actor Zahn McLaren, who's playing the father here, that he only gets two scenes so yeah. far. You know, we could have more flashbacks. We could have this. We could have that. But, I mean, he is a fantastic actor. And if the part only called for these two scenes, he still was the right guy mm-hmm. for it. Um, we of course now are getting, uh, getting 
her motivation. We see uh, Alequa Cox crying real tears, a reminder that this is an actress who who has made her way into the confirmed spinoff. I would say, Pete, based on this episode alone, regardless of what she has ahead, has to be a contender for a guest actor Emmy nomination for, for this series. Uh, and then we head to the saddest feeling MCU title card in a good long while. Yeah, we'll talk about some other uh, Emmy buzz for some of the effects in this episode in a little bit. But after the understated title card, we're at an abandoned KB Toys with a trust a bro moving van out front. Just a reminder, this, of course, not filmed in New York. This filmed in Atlanta, standing in for New York, hence the location, although KB Toys a national brand and, you know, since defunct, Clint Barton and Kate Bishop are mocked as they remain duct taped to the kitty rides, which are moving. Uh, Clint explains he was about to clear Kate's name from the suit when she crashed the party. And one of the tracksuits has a rather animated phone call. And then Kate is counseling him on his girlfriend and their Imagine Dragon tickets. Yes. Uh, Pete, I rather like Imagine Dragons. I was a bit surprised by Kate's... I kind of um, like them too, man. Is, is Are they the new Nickelback? Because if so, that hurts. I don't think so. In fact, I think, uh, I believe Imagine Dragons uh, is from Utah, and they've stood up for LGBTQ rights in a state where that, you know, sometimes is not the case and so forth, so... Even if I can't say like, oh man, I love all their songs and I have the t-shirt. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, that's not true about both for me. Like, hey, good, good, good guys, good tunes, good outlook, bringing happiness to people, bringing, you know, having people live their lives. Like, it's all good. Um, the, the pacing and cutting in this part of the scene, by the way, Pete, we, it's a far cry from our, our more understated intro here. No need to, for example, let the camera linger on the acting of Oscar nominee uh, Haley Steinfeld and things like that. I'll have more to talk about the editing later, but for now, Pete, the boss has arrived. Yes, Maya comes out here uh, after the one tough tracksuit says maybe she'll just, uh, he'll just rip um, Kate's throat out. Uh, he says maybe Maya will. And uh, Kate asks Clint who she is, but he doesn't know. She notices uh, Clint's hearing aid, just like she notices the tell in the previous scene with uh, the other mixed martial artist. And um, she removes the duct tape and begins to sign, but he apologizes as he's hard of hearing and not deaf. Yes, his uh, his hallmark ASL phrase is "more cookie, please," which I, I might might lead to us chuckle, but I don't think we I don't think anybody reads it as a joke. It's him demonstrating that uh, that he has not put in the work. To be fair, nor does he have the necessity uh, to be fluent in American Sign Language. She notes that he should rely less on technology; that he might be better off without it. He does say that his superpower essentially is. What is it? Two two sticks and a string, that kind of thing. Um, Clint then talks about the suit, explaining that Kate put it on by accident, and Kate is not Ronan. 
uh, great line here. She's nine and she's spoiled rotten uh, to really explain why she's not Ronin. Uh, Maya counters that just because Kate isn't Ronin doesn't mean that Ronin is not coming back. Uh, Pete, of course, in the MCU, none of them know about Superman. So you kind of can't have the like, hey, where's Clark? Kind of shorthand to be like, I don't know, I think the rest of us, yes, we know that Clint was Ronin, but I think it's also like, at what point At what point does somebody else give that as a theory? I guess not at all, because uh, that's the world they live in, and they're just, they can't imagine who the mysterious Ronin was. But Pete, who got him after all if Ronin is actually dead? It's super interesting here that Clint mouths Natasha Romanoff, but the sign that's read by Kazi is Black Widow. Um a phrase that was not uttered until her movie. Uh, that's a good, that's a good catch. I think that it's, it's more powerful to have Black Widow signed. Cause I did, uh, Pete, I don't know American sign language one bit, but as soon as there was these different motions and I was like, I don't think he's spelling a, a you know, letters here. And to have it subtitled Black Widow, it was like, Oh, I, hey, I've learned a thing. Um, I think that said, your point, if we want to grade it strictly on continuity, you're probably right that they shouldn't be calling her that. But I think, I don't know, I think, I, I think it gets excused just for the awesomeness of the moment, quite frankly. In an episode that touches on Hawkeye's branding problem yet again, interesting that she's referred to by you know the more marketable name instead of oh it's captain america and natasha romanoff of rogers the musical fame what i like too is that depending on a certain point of view it is kind of true that black widow got ronin um so so there's there's truth in the lie there uh, it's at this point that Maya attacks Kate out of anger and gets pulled off by Kazi. I know we've seen Kazi before this episode, but I give credit to this scene and a number of the scenes where, where I don't know, we are, we are able to understand Kazi a little bit better. We're able to see actor Fra Fee, um, I don't know, pu- putting some pathos behind the guy also, I don't believe Fra Fee ever had, just based on his Wikipedia, he ever had a uh, circumstance to learn sign language before this job. So I can't say whether he's doing a great job with the signing, but it looks it looks like the guy put in the time to do what was asked of him for the part. So credit to him, credit to whoever they got to work with him and so forth, because I do buy that Kazi is fluent. Kazi, the character, is fluent in sign language uh, and thus is able to both carry on conversations for Maya and be her voice as the story navigates what is subtitled with the beauty of sign language and what is said verbally by way of Kazi as, uh, as I said, her voice. And helps to set up Maya's arc. We understand her need for redemption, but here holding her back, you're, you're taking this too far later with the discussion about, uncle finding out about what they're doing um you know really adds that layer of depth instead of woman who lost father 
wants to to kill there's a there's a lot going on there as they are uh speaking uh clint tells kate not to be scared that they're going to harness this ridiculous overconfidence of hers on his signal and then he's freed himself from the reattached duct tape and runs off Kazi yells that he be brought back alive and Clint eludes the tracksuits in aisles and aisles of shelves. But then when he shakes them, faces off against Maya and it's a great fight here. She kicks the hearing aid out and stomps it with her boots. He gets his bow and shoots two arrows to pin Maya to a wall. Um, He then jumps off a landing in Typical style, slow motion there, firing an arrow that nicks Kazi and frees Kate before he lands in a ball pit at this abandoned KB, which I don't ever remember being a feature of these stores. And he must not know the urban legends about ball pits. Well, a couple of thoughts. First of all, if the MCU is ever so slightly different from our universe, okay, maybe some KBs had ball pits. Second of all, if this was like the a KB toys in its own building as opposed to the normal mall outlet, could they have had some extra whistles and bells? Okay, maybe. I, I think that where where the ball pit gets gets the highest praise is it's a really easy and fun way to have Navy SEAL hiding in the swamp. Um, but kind of recalibrated for an abandoned toy store. Um, and that was a fun bit where you know we can see him, I'll say swimming, for lack of a better word, swimming through it and then not moving, and then the guys come up and he's able to leap up out of there. Pete, you called it a great fight. I would say it's a good fight, and the reason I downgraded a little bit is because we're now back to I would like to be Joe and Anthony Russo, uh, said, I guess, directors Bert and Birdie, who are now shaking the camera a whole bunch, and I guess the editor agrees as well. Why have Haley Steinfeld do a stunt, or why have a stunt person, who could be very capable in hiding her face, as stunt people oftentimes do, uh, to do a complete stunt, when in one of these shots you have... Uh, Kate, whoever's playing her, whether it's Haley or the stunt person, they have four cuts in 1.5 seconds. When you're going to edit that fast, why do any of it? Why not just go, I don't know, have flashes of color on the screen and say, two minutes later, they win or something like that. It's it's not the best scene in terms of just fluidly showing things. Uh, so there's my harumph feat. <laughs> I love that she incorporates, uh, so if I'm going to ding you on the ball pit, I love that she incorporates the shopping cart into her part of the fight. Um, And then uh, Clint hitting a guy in the hand, which pins him to a column, uh, of course, at the uh, other side. But uh, they finish Kazi off. He... Clint grabs his smashed hearing aid and uh, Kate notes that Maya still has her bow as they get outside and uh, find a 72 challenger, but they're not going to smash that. At least Clint won't. Yeah. And what comes next is the marquee sequence of perhaps the entire 
MCU TV history, short as it is, this effects-driven yet luscious, quote-unquote, uncut POV shot inside the car as the camera at a steady pace is turning around and around. We see traffic swerving, baddies following, baddies in front of them, twists and turns. Um, It's stellar. My only regret is that they showed part of this in the preview, but it's such a great scene. I don't mind one bit. Um, As we said in that preview discussion, I think that you can... You can probably reasonably go back and rewatch it and say, I think there's a cut here, I think there's a cut there, but that does not take away from the power of it. Um, Pete, indeed, my only complaint of the sequence, when Kate blows up the Trust-A-Bro truck, her holy shh is cut off. <laughs> Pete, I think she earned the it, if you know what I mean. I don't know why they didn't just go with that, but maybe it's maybe it's Disney or maybe it's Haley Steinfeld or whatever, but uh, Pete, she had she had the it coming. This sequence is the it, Matt, as you've identified so far. Uh, the the obsession that her character has with the trick arrows um, and that Clint removes a number of the dangerous ones. The number later is apparently four. She hits Kazi's uh, pickup truck with what is referred to as a Play-Doh arrow. Um, he says a, a putty arrow later on not sure if they're one in the same uh but the purple gack there gets in the way uh and they have a hard time seeing uh they're not labeled these arrows he can't hear her which is another great wrinkle in you know just routine run and gun chase um and they both say uh through the conceit of him not being able to hear her uh, that's followed up in the next couple scenes, uh, it'd be a lot easier if they were facing the other way, stressing the communication, one that she helped uh, the tracksuit out with and his imagined dragon's dilemma, and now with her and her erstwhile mentor. Uh, and she hits that van with the arrow and the grill that blows up. Uh, Maya then catches up in the chase, in the challenger, um, and locks with uh, Hawkeye and Kate in their car facing the reverse way. Um, She shoots, Kate does the plunger arrow, and then their car turns into the Christmas tree lot um, where another arrow, this one shooting, I guess, tethers everywhere, grabs the trees and just, you know, it, it could be really cliche what they went to with these arrows and both novel and good effects in terms of what they choose. In this Christmas tree portion, there's a few green screen shots that are obvious. Uh, I don't complain on its own merit. I guess I'm just, I'm a bit surprised that Marvel hasn't deployed the Mandalorian stagecraft LED uh, screen stuff yet. I think it's a reminder that this is new tech, and if you have a pipeline of a production already happening, you can't necessarily drop it in. Um, even as we get ready later this month for a third season of you know the Mandalorian slash Boba Fett corner of things. But I, again, just interesting to see how quickly things are evolving, and even within the same company with theoretically the same access to 
sister companies and, and I, uh, ILM and all that, that th- things are still getting figured out. The chase heads to a bridge. Uh, Clint ultimately uh, is able to stop the guy with the gun. Kate gets her own bow back This as the two cars are right next to each other. Um, and the, uh, the the Dodge gets damaged, banged up. Ugh, it was going to get banged up anyway, says Clint, uh, sadly, in a bit. Um, then there's this great two-arrow play here, which was a delight and if we're gonna be if we're gonna do goofy things with goofy trick arrows it's been building to this and Mm -hmm. it's just just what a what a what a thoughtful way to have to have a climax to this chase yeah so that clint tells her to shoot her regular arrow straight up and then he fires uh, an arrow revealed at the last second to have a blue neon pim on it. And of course the trademark little logo that uh, he hits her arrow, turning it into something at least the size of a telephone pole that comes right down on Kazi's pickup truck and rips it in half as well as effectively blocking traffic from that side of the bridge thank goodness it took out the back of the you know the open pickup truck which clearly had nobody in it because pg-13 and disney and so forth like of all the trucks to hit and all the sections of the truck it's the part where the two guys in it can live just fine thank you very much um there's then some more bow razzmatazz here as uh maya and crew are ready to close on in uh, Clint jumps off the bridge using the bow to have a grappling hook. And uh, it's here where the suction cup arrow lets them, well, uh, I guess by way of the bow, they're able to get on top of the uh, passing subway uh, car. It's with the suction cup that they're able to not slide off. Uh, Pete, they're on top of the subway car. Then we see a subway station with a train moving. And then Kate and Clint are in the car. So I, I guess by the magic of editing they got in or i guess editing in our brain and we we don't need to see it because if i ended up on the top of a moving subway car i'd be a little concerned still but not them pete that's why they're heroes and i guess i'm not sitting in the subway car there's a poster behind them we're definitely going to talk about a little later uh but the conversation here uh kate notes they gotta walk the dog clint not able to hear her is on his own Frequency here says that she's not wrong, Uh, not, of course, in response to what she said, but previously having called herself one of the world's greatest archers. Uh, And certainly what is the point of that sequence other than action is to show that she's got the goods. I mean, when you think about the acid arrows and shooting down the stoplights you know she's shown that under pressure she can hit moving targets or targets while she is moving uh all setting up this evolution here and and the baton being passed um but she wasn't sure how she'd do under pressure and then clint on his own thinking that they should probably walk the dog don't you think he's been cooped up all day now there's a lot that's great about this subway car conversation, but 
I think there's also some weakness. Let me tell you what it is. The series is a two-hander. You have your two leads. They're getting equal, uh, equal love from the powers that be, the story and so forth, which is as it should be. Haley Steinfeld is so good at emoting the little moments of her character's exuberance. And, and Pete, I know I took some maybe implied uh, shots at Renner in the past. He's just, he's playing a more low-key guy, certainly in this scene. Uh, not low-key. Low-key's low. Tom Hiddleston in that. He's playing a, a more low-energy... He's energy. not a variant, is he? <laughs> he's not, Pete. He's playing a more... Renner is An playing... arrow variant? <laughs> he's playing a more... He's playing a guy with lower energy, and that's fine, too. I think in this scene, because the camera, because the choice has been made to show them in a two-shot, uncut, we can't move in on Haley Steinfeld and see every little acting choice that she's making. That will be different in the diner scene shortly. But I, again, I think it's just—is she the right person to play to play uh, to play Kate? Absolutely. Is is he well earned to continue to play uh, Clint Barton in this show after you know ten years? Blah blah. Absolutely. Um, and and he's been a, he's been the right cool character for the character uh, the whole time. It's just different acting, different acting styles on screen, and then you put them next to each other, both facing the camera at the same time. And I just felt like it was a little, I, I don't know, it, it it was peanut butter and Hershey syrup, which is good but not quite perfection. I liked it for the dialogue and the the way that they're building this idea of communication and what that means for a teacher and a student. Um, there's a great shot of a Roger sign that the subway passes by elevated platform there. Uh, interesting on the poster that Hawkeye is in the background left and the uh, catchphrase is every Avenger brought to life, which certainly has added resonance given uh, you know, the idea that several of them are now dead. Um, the, uh, the aunt's apartment is where they wind up next, where Clint is, uh, changed, toweling off, opens the freezer door, uh, and Father Christmas, uh, then gets muffled in an episode, Matt, I think, has to get some kind of Emmy attention for overall sound design. Yeah, this is, I think somebody, not me, somebody could make the argument that this is not a necessary scene because we're not advancing a whole lot of story football stuff. We're not, it's not a, a razzmatazz action thing and so forth. But I think, you know, if we're saying, well, what was the note card taped to the wall in the writer's room? All right, this is a scene about the stakes. Will he get home for Christmas? He has a family and so forth. Okay, it's a nice reminder in the middle of the episode. But more importantly, it's grounding him. It's showing him, uh, I won't say frail, but showing him um, needing the partner or slowing down from the hero biz or both. It's showing the deep concern that Kate has for him and how she can think on her feet and help him out um, and how she is more than just a quote-unquote nine-year-old uh, with a bad attitude or whatever he had said earlier. Um I also realize she's not nine, um, but there's there's emotion going on here. This is a scene, maybe because they have close-ups and not a two-shot, but this is a scene where his, you know, I'm getting old for this kind of acting presentation 
it's working. It's working emotionally. It's working because of what's going on in the scene in terms of I wish I was home for Christmas and all that. And her energy and her spring to it and her jump in and help, that's helped by the circumstances of the scene in terms of quick writing the notes to, to transcribe what little Nate is saying. And it's just, I mean, this is a scene that's all heart and it's a reminder that, you know, every MCU movie ends with a light beam and a CGI army of people who we don't care if they get cut in half fighting other people we don't care if they cut in half backed by armies of people that we don't know while the hero and the villain duke it out you know and so like those things are nice but that's not why we care about the mcu it's moments like this the emotion of the scene carries over well and you know what happens here she's now aware of his family of uh his son uh identifying to clint that it's not your wife on the phone we never see who's calling but that he says babe we can assume he thinks he's talking to his wife and then she holds up the note that it's a little boy um the only thing that takes me out of this scene is there's no way she's written these messages she's holding up the ones that are pre-written because her hand doesn't move enough to make those marks. It's the only thing I think that would ding you out of this scene. Okay. Um, regretfully, he doesn't think he's going to make it for a couple days, uh, but he says he hopes to be there for ugly sweater party. We're told at the start of the season, six days, we have to assume we're down to like four at this point. Um, but he was happy to hear Nathaniel's voice. Remember Nate named for Natasha um, and uh, thanks her understatedly at the end of the conversation before we're back outside the soon to be former trust a bro location. Yes, the tracksuits are moving out of the, the KB toys. Uh, Maya and Kazi have a bit of a confrontation. Uh, the thrust of it being, is Maya putting the crew first? Uh, Kazi suggesting that perhaps she is not. Uh, he reminds her that her father would have put the crew first. And, you know, again, just this, this great uh, acting moment here out of Aliqua Cox where she sneers at him. It does a little bit of kind of like the... I don't even know what Pete. I don't know what the cool kids call it, but kind of the you know the the, the shoulder thrust, like kind of a come at me, bro, kind of motion. Just in terms of like Pete, what I'm trying to say is what she can't communicate through voice. She's communicating through the acting on her face and her mm -hmm. body language, and it's almost more powerful than anything anybody could say in terms of like what do you mean? Um, because she's reminding him who's in charge. That's right, she's in charge. Um, I know in a minute we're about to get a conversation about who's actually in charge behind the person who's in charge, but it's clear enough that the tracksuits are being run by her and her word is her word is the law and uh, Kazi should not forget that lest he become the first assistant to the baddie in a Marvel movie who then ends up either biting it or going to prison or whatever it might be. Yeah, and she orders him to look into Clint Barton in Little China uh kate and clint are sitting on a stoop with the dog clint gets a text from her on his flip rocket phone that it's a good thing that he's hawkeye and not hockey or uh his his laugh is 
not our laugh. We are at this location. We don't know why. It turns out that it's the hearing, uh, the hearing aid doctor. I guess the doctors do the repairs. Um, whatever. It's a short scene. It's explaining why they have an opportunity for more conversation. He gets the thing fixed. Then they go to breakfast. Kate says that she uh, wants to be a hero. Clint notes that being a hero comes with sacrifices. Uh, this is Renner's best scene in the episode, I would say, perhaps in the series so far. It's Steinfeld's best scene as well, uh, particularly as they kind of... The, 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 the shot choice here starts out with some, some shots of each other, uh, of each actor looking into the camera, i.e. looking into the eyes of the other character. Then they kind of move off that a little bit, and the camera's like half over the shoulder of the other person, so it's not quite... They're not looking into our... Our, our, our TV screens in our living rooms as fully. All of that are great choices. Just put the camera on these people and let them act. Uh, it's here where she suggests a more flashy costume. Pete, is that a crude drawing of the OG comics version, but with the <laughs> just preposterous wing thing on the helmet? Uh, th- for me, it's the dumb H at the top. Yeah, uh, old school comic accurate but uh, points off for dorkiness. I have to admit, I mean, I guess I've seen the, I've seen that mask before. I mean, I, I must have, right? In all these years of just talking about this stuff and whatnot, uh, I, it never occurred to me that the way that mask looked was meant to be Hawk's wings. Like, it's it, it's a goofy design. Uh, I'm glad she proposes maybe a 2.0, which I'm assuming is some 90s era, if not, if not, slightly earlier slightly later where it's you know more uh, a plain black cowl and that sort of thing but but more importantly pete clint notes that he is not a role model to anyone he says this to the top person who looks up to him as a role model so i, I i'm not complaining that there wasn't enough acting or writing or whatever here i just think I, I ask somewhat rhetorically, what must it be like for Kate to be told by her role model that essentially, hey, kid, go on home. You shouldn't be modeling yourself after me. It's, it, it's, a, great, it's a great moment here, particularly at the halfway point of the season. They're, they're setting up at the halfway part of the season his fall in her eyes and ultimate redemption because she's going to learn he was the Ronin and then understand the significance and move past it. Um, you know, cause the other costume comes up here, uh, cause maybe the Hawkeye one incorporates a hood, you know, like the Ronin one that allowed him to be a ghost made him a hood. Uh, and he could, uh, be divorced by his wife if he wore this other one. And, uh, yeah, that would have not have been a move he wanted to make. Um, but she notes that he's left his family at Christmas to help a stranger. Now he's stuck. And the tracksuits uh, are obviously out to get Ronan. Um, and, you know, it's all coalescing here coming into view. Uh, he steps away, I think, to pay, and Kate wonders what to name the dog, which I'm assuming is a narrative function to just keep the dog in the story for a little bit here. 
um, the two and the dog uh, have a walk and talk in Central Park, which is funny because we've had little bits from this episode, like, I think, them sitting outside the uh, the hearing aid doctor's place, um, as well as the Central Park scene. This is the stuff that was hitting social media same day when it was being filmed back a year ago. So to kind of have this moment where it's like, there she is with the scratches on her face, walking the dog, and there he is with her. Like, oh, now it's kind of, it's making a bit more sense. Um, in this walk and talk scene, they talk about the top man, the one above Maya. Uh, the exact dialogue here is, I thought Maya was in charge. No, there's someone above him, someone you don't want to uh, mess with. And I want to point out, Pete, that that dialogue is delivered by the person speaking, the person speaking those two lines, the first half is is uh, Kate, second half is Clint, it's done uh, off screen. Like they're showing Kate while Clint talks and vice versa. I bet you, Pete, that this was done intentionally. Uh, here they are, they're in New York City, they have to deliver this scene. No one's going to be reading lips or overhearing stuff or, or, or whatnot. I bet it was just dummy dialogue or let's just have them you know, say alligator, alligator, whatever it is, so the mouth is moving. And then later in the security of, you know, a, a, of a post-production recording booth, you can actually have this most essential dialogue here setting up uh, the fact that Kingpin is coming. The other guy. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if I agree with you on the secrecy end there, but clearly if that it's, Vincent D'Onofrio and Kingpin that clearly they limited the people that would need to be around to maintain that yet. Now this rumor, um, you know, which grew to a fever pitch last week. And, and now that people have seen this episode, uh, Oh, you know, who, who is uncle, who is uncle? Um, in a cab, Matt, after the discussion about what Ronan did hitting the supplier on the other side and then tracksuit upper management, whoever that is, um, they're talking about uh, the auction. Um, Kate was so focused on Jack and Armand. Um, Clint notes that it's upsetting that stuff from the Avengers compound is floating around and what the connection to Jack could be. Um, she says, of course, there's too many coincidences. And uh, yesterday, he, of all things, Jack did, offered her a butterscotch. Um, we had discussed in the last episode how, uh, as viewers, we can understand how there's clouds a foreman to make Jack you know, to make Jack a baddie. However, we kind of, as objective people in the MCU, if we were, if we were to be plunked in the MCU, uh, all right, he has a butterscotch from his uncle's place, and that's not proof that he did the stabbing, and so forth. Um, I like that the way she explains it to Clint, A, it's a reminder to us, we in the, you know, we who have the better perspective and we who, who suspect Jack is no good. Um, can go, uh-huh, okay, good reminder, seeing as how Jack's barely going to show up in this episode, and we're going to deal with it more next week, certainly more next week than this week. But the way she explains it, with that exuberance, with that energy, to Clint, who's, you know, seen Titans, and been to other worlds, and everything else, uh, how 
it just comes out in this jumbled mess where like he's a bad guy because he collects swords and and has butterscotches what like it doesn't make sense and it's just again here maybe there's a learning process i don't know but here they're different the different energies of the characters let alone perhaps the different energies of the actors here you're you're getting that 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 mix where it's it's really working and not to mention that he had parried her attempt at his face like a pro uh and he had everything to gain from armand the third's death uh but he notes it's not exactly airtight they need more evidence so they're going to sneak into mom's penthouse get into the company files at bishop security that has a huge criminal database that of course will pull all this together there's got to be information on the tracksuits and jack uh, we have her doing the standard login clickety-click stuff. Uh, Clint is amazed that this place is just a home. Um, the subtitles say, you know, something like, you know, door closes or something like that, uh, which clearly Clint responds to, Pete, I had my sound turned up a fair amount. I didn't exactly hear the door close, but regardless, uh, Clint steps away. It's at this point, Kate's saying she, she can't search for Jack. There's some, oh, wait. Now I've been booted from the system and so forth. And then, ka-ching, there's a sword at Clint's neck. The camera reveals it is Jack to end the episode. Do you see what I see? Do you see what I see? Way up in the sky, little lamb. Do you see what I see, Pete? I see a theory. And let's start with the obvious one. Uh, not if, but when will Vincent D'Onofrio's Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. Kingpin, appear in this show? Uh, only narcs, Matt, call him Wilson Fisk, so thanks for outing yourself uh, and <laughs> saying his name. And I know I'm speaking to a dead man on the other end of this microphone. Pete, in uh, Marvel's Daredevil... Uh, when he gave this, you know, kind of growly performance and whatnot, to hear him speak, I th- did we see him on stage at New York Comic Con? I feel like we we did, right? We did, yes. Um, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's normal speaking voice, despite the fact that he's a tall guy, um, depending on what role he's preparing for, on the heftier side, um, and certainly old enough where you know if the voice w- was up here, it might have come down a little bit. He's a guy who speaks with a naturally somewhat kind of higher, jovial, bouncy voice, kind of more up here. And then, you know, when he needs to act, he's kingpin. Um, when I heard that laugh, that was the laugh of the Vincent D'Onofrio who's, you know, said, you know, I love playing this part. Ha ha ha. Here I am at New York Comic Con being feted like a, you know, like a king and whatnot. Um, I have no doubt that that was Vincent D'Onofrio laughing, whether that was actually his hand or not. Okay, maybe you get a double to keep the secrecy. That I don't quite know, but Pete, I know the rumor is out there. Now I believe it. The rumors are true. The rumors are true. <laughs> uh, like I said last week, uh, the rumor is episodes four through six. So does this count? Clearly, it was some kind of double. It was somebody else. Uh, there, there were multiple people in the scene, so keeping a lid on it would have been very hard to do. Remains to be seen how they'll, when they'll introduce him. We, we all want it to be um, 
Vincent D'Onofrio's version of this big bad. Um, and we want as much of that to continue the same way. There are persistent rumors that other Marvel Netflix characters are going to pop up in the not so distant future. Uh, and beyond that. Um, but you know, that there would be acknowledgement of the greatness. And if it's a word, belovedness of, uh, this bad guy and to incorporate it into, uh, the now changed universe when clearly it was part of it all along once before. Um, I mentioned it before, Matt, with, with Maya, with the dragon thing. Okay. Um, if her character's destiny does not put her on the back of one of those mythical beasts. Now that we've had Shang-Chi, uh, it's really a blown opportunity. Well, and realizing how, how the MCU, and this is something I think we discussed as recently as last week, but the, the, the biggest strength in my mind of the MCU is not, not necessarily the power of the IP or, Kevin Feige, although if, if, if Kevin Feige is not number one on the list, he's probably number two, um, or the Disney money and all that, it's that they have the right formula to have a plan that's a really good plan that you can set long-term and you can stick with your, your guidepost for that, but how there's tons of flexibility built in. Perfect example, Pete, I was reading, and, and I don't think it's a I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that Yelena Belova is coming to this show, seeing as how the literally the last time we saw her in the secret scene of uh, Black Widow, the entire thrust of the scene was, I'm going to go find Hawkeye the next time anybody sees him in the MCU. Um, and how essentially the, this Hollywood Reporter article was saying, um, you know, Marvel needed convincing. They needed convincing to shoot that scene and so on and so forth to get her to come over to Hawkeye. Um I don't know how much convincing they needed as opposed to it's a really solid idea. And when you lay it out, you say, okay, let's check to see if the contracts work. They do great. Bing, bang, boom. But my point is this, Pete, Kevin Feige eight years ago didn't say, and then one day we'll have Hawkeye have a mournful past in the five-year break that we see in Endgame. And then we're going to fill that in with a show for a streamer that has yet to be invented. And then we're going to take Black Widow 2 and have her say, I'm going to go get you, Hawkeye, because you took away my sister who was your friend. And then we're going to have a crossover. Like, that was not part of the plan. Somebody involved with this Says show. Says you. Well, somebody involved with this show early on, I think it was Jonathan Igla, who's the, uh, the, the head writer, um, said, you know, made the case to have her come over. So again, there's this flexibility here to say... What 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 do we have out there on the story for story potential? So to bring it back to Maya, this somewhat lengthy tangent here, does somebody necessarily have a plan where, you know, Maya shows up in Shang-Chi 3 and she gets to ride a dragon? Maybe that's not a scripted plan, but it's such a good scene on its own. And it's such a good like, hey, the show may come out around the time when Shang-Chi is on Disney Plus. I don't know. Or now there's dragons because Shang-Chi, who knows if the line was written pre-COVID, you know, whatever. Uh, there's going to be dragons and she can like dragons. That's cool. Then at some later point, somebody else can come along and go, finally, all it took from 
Age of Ultron to Endgame to have Cap pick up the hammer, same thing. You get to have Maya with a dragon, ride a dragon, yeah. whatever, whenever that happens. It's that kind of stuff that fans go nuts for. Uh, Matt, urban legends about ball pits. What do you have? Um, I, Pete, I suspect you might know more about them than me. <laughs> I, do, I feel like as a kid, I can remember, I can remember being very young and ball pits were like a fun thing. Maybe like I always thought, oh, there should be more in there. It should be like you're swimming in a pool. Um, but I feel like being a like the late single digits, you know, age seven, eight, nine, somewhere in there, I feel like the allure of a ball pit just stopped being a thing for me. This is certainly before I was aware of, you know, germs the way we are certainly now in 2021, let alone, uh, I don't know, you know, oh, I, when I was 15, I got the bad flu and now I avoid, you know, whatever. Um, I just feel like instinctually I don't trust them. So what can you tell me about those ball pits? So you're unaware of the urban legend that there's a solid inch of urine at the bottom of every ball pit? I am definitely unaware of that. <laughs> I thought you were going to tell me something about solid waste, not liquid waste. So I am I am surprised. Never heard anything about solid waste, and, and that definitely piques uh, the, the old interest. But uh, <laughs> then uh, also as a hideout for hypodermic needles. That I feel like would be a bigger concern. I don't know, concern me as a kid, concern me as a parent. I mean, I, I, I remember like being, I don't know if it still is a thing. I don't know, but like being concerned, like, Hey, watch out for hypodermic needles. And if, when you're at the beach in case they wash up, I don't know if that was a thing in our general area or in pay phones when, <sighs> when people would check the coin return. Um, that I had, that one, that I had not heard about, but that sounds, that sounds like a reasonable urgent or urban legend. So when Clint submerged himself <laughs> in the ball pit, I could not have been the only one that groaned, right? Kind of like cut to underwater shot of him swimming through, through swimming through urine before he pops <laughs> up and says, <laughs> you know, maybe he's less troubled by it having, ha having, parented three kids but still is like oh man was he swimming with his mouth open pete this is he did he did get a shower when they got back to the apartment and he's changed so you you have to imagine <laughs> that in universe wow i was just yes i was in a a car chase arrow uh and and traditional shootout but also i i <laughs> may have ursa all over my body pete let me ask you one here okay also from that you know early new york city street you know street filming a year ago um there was all the the happy new year signs and whatnot and maybe we're going to get more but outside the doctor fixer place the one who uh repairs hearing aids there's a happy new year 2020 something sign I'm wondering why cover up that last digit? Uh, was it maybe covered up after the fact, like somebody in special effects put a basket there or something? Pete, do we have possibly the timeline on the move? I don't think it's on the move. And as I mentioned in the previous podcast episode, though they said years, it's actually uh, 2024 Christmas. So that is definitive that's out of the mouths of the producer so 
we can only take that on its face. Uh, and Pete, last one for me. This is my my weekly Hawkeye question. Uh, will Clint <laughs> get home for Christmas? I I think the substance of Kate and Clint's conversation and overhearing the one that he has with his son this week cements the idea that the three of them are going to spend Christmas together. I think the family again comes to them. Uh, Pete, what theories do you have on your end? There is an NFI, some organization poster on the subway. And so the, the concept in film is it's a French concept, mise-en-scene, and that is that everything placed in the frame of a camera is, of course, intentional, except, of course, when it is not intentional. You think about, uh, you know, boom mics appearing in corners and reflections and, and things like this, you know, um, Starbucks cups in your Games of Thrones and all of that. Uh, which digitally now, of course, we can uh, take out. But the poster asks the question, are you feeling like there are no options? We are trained in helping families move forward together. There appears to be a therapist. And then there is uh, a couch across from the female therapist that someone is sitting on. And then uh, Kate's kind of blocking. I assume it says you don't have to be or, or it doesn't have to be this hard. It just says doesn't have to be this hard. And then the organization NFI is very difficult to see what the organization's full name is, but it is beneath that NFI. And this really had me thinking of the GRC of the Global Repatriation Council from Hawkeye and wondering if there's some kind of larger meaning message uh, resonance here. It would be interesting to see like on some of the, you know, New York shoot set photos. Are there better shots of that? Uh, I think at the very least I would connect it to Falcon and say, it's suggestive of that kind of post-snap world. I, I know I've also said on this podcast, we're kind of moving away. We, Marvel, is is moving away from that as a storytelling point. Uh, we're just settling into the here and now versus the, you know, the, the dealing with the post-snap, the post-return and all that. Um, perhaps this is just another agency meant to be suggestive of that, but... Maybe there's even that intentional, like, all right, for Falcon, we did the 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 G the GRC, and that was a little bit more upfront. And now we just kind of want to intentionally start to bring down the volume in terms of here's another group helping with the tough times that were now X number of years ago, and to just kind of fade out on that. Um, that would be my thought, assuming assuming it's all intentional, and there's not somebody from New York City listening to this podcast, like. Don't you know that's the counseling and well-being service that the city is providing, you know, or, or that kind of thing? I mean, listen, we're we're not far away, away enough from New York, but I've never heard of this NFI, and it's curious to shoot that 
scene in front of that poster and, and not something else. Uh, that's done all the time with film that they will look at what's going to be in the shot and obviously, hey, we've got to swap this out. We don't want the nobody beats the whiz free advertisement over, uh, you know, the the Disney Plus KB again, of course, being long since defunct. All right, we'll we'll give that, you know, company RIP a little a uh, little bit of a bump. Um, Matt, your response has me thinking, you know, I, I want to know it's just who I am, you know, you take all the characters and I want to know snapped, not snapped. Like, obviously you can go through the bulk of the people in this episode. We know that Clint, uh, stayed. We know that Maya stayed. We know that her father stayed. We know that uncle stayed since that was really who Ronan was uh lashing out at um did Kate go did her mom go did Jack go is is this still part of the story like I look forward to at some point knowing in some encyclopedic way all right here are all the characters that were snapped here are all the characters that were not I know we see in Endgame, we see a pretty kind of um, dire situation, particularly in New York, and kind of something which approaches like post-economy or post-economic depression kind of situation. I do wonder, like, we know that the bishops are ultra-wealthy. Is this like one of these, like, oh no, there's a pandemic. Well, we do have the house in New Zealand. Let's just go there you know is this one of these things where it's like oh man what do you mean um what do you mean kate's mom can't go down to the local grocery to get to get uh i don't know whatever well she can just overpay for carrots she's very wealthy you know or or she's already got to the farm in connecticut and you know that kind of thing that's my long way of saying it makes me wonder if there is a certain uh, class of people, economic class of people, for whom if you weren't snapped, okay, life was very different. But okay, I'm like I said, I'm just going to go live in the live on the working farm, and we'll we'll round up enough non-snapped people to help work the farm and whatnot, and I will still be comfortable enough. Um, I wonder if that's uh, if that's one way story-wise, because again. Marvel is looking to move on from that as a life-changing event in the lives of people. Um, Maybe one way is to say, oh, coincidentally, Kate and Mom and Jack, none of them were snapped, but life was kind of basically smooth uh, or, 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 you know, not drastically changed. Like, you know, uh, oh, man, the pilot of my plane got snapped and now my plane fell to the ground and I'm dead, too. Like, uh, so, yeah. What do you think about that, Pete? I mean, like I said, I want to for each character know the status at some point, you know, whether it's a five year down the road thing, we can look at the pantheon of all their characters and know, you know, these people stayed, these people went away, um, you know, much in the way that the battle of New York has become a repeatedly referenced thing, um, you know, more so than a, a Sokovia, and the resonance there to the accords and powered people and everything like that. 
um, I think is another thing that just makes this universe complex and uh, and deep. Uh, speaking of which, the Pym Arrow that, you know, other than maybe a pop-up by like a Agent Jimmy Woo, probably not something we thought we'd get from that particular corner of this universe. No, and I think that it it speaks to the story potential, um, both good and bad, for what mysterious things are in the quiver. Uh, kind of makes me think of Green Lantern a little bit, where it's like, if anything is possible, then then there's a certain goofiness that might not, among other things, might not translate well into live action. Looking at you, Green Lantern movie. One of the worst things I've ever seen. Uh, that said, I think that what's nice about the quiver is there's only so much in there. So you want to say, Clint has had this magic arrow for however long, at what at whatever point, he, he got it. Okay, and he whether he had five or ten or just the one. Okay, this is the day where there was a use for it. If in the next episode, there's a story spot for another one, but you don't want that to be the all fix. That's when you can, you know, oh, blast, if only I hadn't used the Pym Arrow. Like, there's that flexibility there. And I think that, I guess we'll see, you know, this is obviously a fairly grounded story, and he's resisting heroing and all of that. We'll see if in a if in a Hawkeye season two with with Kate as the lead or something like that, they're probably holding off on a ton of trick arrows and saving them for, you know, for the James Bond trick car kind of moments and not every moment. Uh, but we will see. Ant-Man is erroneously in Rogers the musical, strangely not on the sign, <laughs> which you know, is it a real physical sign they threw up uh, by that subway platform? Is that digital trickery? Don't know. He was in Times Square with the other costumed people taking photos. And now we've had the pin particle arrow here. Seems seems really, uh, you know, tangentially linked. Yeah, I wonder what those, I wonder what the factors are that make that happen like is that is that a product of you know uh kevin feige walks in and says hey don't forget ant-man 3 is gonna start shooting at such and such time or here's the schedule now wrapped wrapped and uh some some news out of that so does it come from there or does it come from the lowliest the, the the lowliest writer on the writing staff saying, "Hey, what if we had a couple Ant Man jokes in there?" You know, which is to say, maybe it's there just for the sake of a chuckle and just for the sake of a story thing to be the the the, the capper in this fight, as opposed to some larger commentary. I, I think that's that's again kind of where there where there are these benefits to the MCU where it can be it can be one or the other, as opposed to say, you know, I don't know. There's been discussion on our Star Trek podcasts like, oh man, the the captain of the ship of the show we're watching is always at the direct crossroads of the most important thing to ever happen most recently in the universe. And you kind of go, okay, well, that's the nature of the story. With the MCU, you can have you can have crossovers that happen just because Clint got a thing off screen, you know, five years ago, or he's hanging out with Ant-Man right before this story started, and we're all going to find that out when we see Ant-Man 3 and... 18 months, you know, it, it, it's all kind of possible there. The USB arrow, Matt, 
makes enough sense, right? And Kate shoots it and it does nothing. But what if we'd seen that arrow before? Well, I thought we had, didn't we? Wasn't that in the first Avengers movie? There was a USB arrow on the... Right, but we've seen it in the the what if used to store Uh... the information. Um and again, not a groundbreaking. I mean, the 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 Pym one is the the one that takes the cake, um, but just that these things, uh, you know, whether it's going to be something like the the purple slime or you know all these cables shooting out to to grab the Christmas trees, um, that they could be used as a weapon of their own, and then the Bond esque trickery that they hide inside yeah and i think you know is there some overarching you know it, it's 2021 we've gotten two hawkeye usb arrow references what does it mean um maybe it means a thing maybe it's just serendipity maybe the writer of this episode saw an early cut of the what if and said oh let's we need to have the dummy arrow anyway. Well, what's more dumb than the USB arrow that already was made fun of in the movie that it appeared? You know, you're not you're not ever quite sure, which I think is a good thing. Um, with a lot of these properties, it's like make it familiar but new. And what's nice with Marvel is you can do that, and not know. It's like make it important, or maybe it's not. Marvel's able to to walk that line. Sloan Limited is the current employer of Kazi. Uh, what's the connection there and how's that going to come back? Um, uh, Pete, maybe it's part of the grand crossover to Sloan, the character from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> um, that's that's what I have. Where else do I know the name Sloan from for the MCU? Where have you heard it? Yeah, like I feel like I, I feel like you're setting up something I should know, and uh, I feel no, like I'm blanking. No, 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 just just wondered. You know, it was conspicuous, obviously, by its mention late in the episode, uh, as Clint's following creaking doors. Um, and then the last thing for me, Matt, the discussion of obviously where Clint has sacrificed in his life to do these things that help so many people but obviously come at a cost what is kate's cost going to be uh i think pete in the grand style of you know man with a thousand faces and stars war and many other stories i think kate is gonna have to say goodbye to uh her mother at least as a as a as a role model she'll have to say goodbye i know she doesn't want to say hello to jack as a positive male role model slash father figure but i think we're going to see kate essentially um orphaned in the world whether it's by death or prison or whatever it might be now pete as you have said can she join a, a family of her own choosing perhaps that of the bartons or maybe the avengers new or old uh there's that as potential but i think it's going to be that you know kate welcome to adulthood the your your elders are gone you're on your own now we're dashing through the snow to the mailbox pete we check our our twitter poll here familiar laugh our hawkeye podcast hits the target <laughs> indeed 
you know, it's more of like a ha ha ha, I'm back, even though they canceled all of Marvel television. Uh, what was the highlight of episode three? The choices were Pete Alaqua Cox, that got 15.2%. Echo's backstory, tear emoji, got 10.9%. That car chase, got 41.3%. And then Pete, the one that I hope people didn't sleep on, uh, king emoji, pin emoji, <laughs> hand emoji. That's right, kingpin's hand got 32.6%. Um, Pete, I feel like all all guesses were correct. We heard via the typity type from James the Sagacious that's at Big Killing on Twitter. I could have picked any voting option. Uh, Alakwa Cox gets the nod, though. She's an amazing add to the Marvel Universe. That car scene was so over the top, I almost giggled. The show doesn't take itself seriously, so neither will I. I guess all the cops in New York City are chasing Punisher. Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, that is really good. Yeah, we didn't see one cop car. We did not. And <laughs> you, you know what? Uh, I didn't even think of it as it's going on so yes they're clearly after frank castle and surprise it's here's john bernthal's frank castle has entered the fight uh pete just i i think i know you're kidding but just confirm to the listeners are you kidding am i though okay (laughs) uh we heard from jt adkins it's at jta is me loved this episode uh appreciative of the effusive fun with bittersweet flavors Sounds like JT is rating a wine here. I, I know he's a classy guy, but oh my goodness. Uh, however, why do so many shows, this one included, shoot people signing an extreme close-up so we can't see their hands? Not just a little. Looking at you, hashtag, Pete, I'm going to reference a show here that I know you haven't oh seen. And it's referencing the best episode. Well, let me finish his thought here. Looking at you, hashtag, only murders in the building which is also awesome. Pete, the episode that he's referencing will win an Emmy for writing, period. I don't, I guess Emmy is, comedy writing is usually, it is what it is. That episode will win the Emmy in part because it has four words of dialogue in the entire half hour and it is wonderful. Yeah, I've I've slept on that series. I got to get going on it. Um, I mean, when I was initially reading, I, I thought he was going to go to Inhumans with Black Bolt. <laughs> no one ever should. No one ever should. Um, we heard Except from no... go listen to the Inhumans podcast by Fantastic Geek. <laughs> yes, the one podcast where we said, we're breaking the rule where we know people love this show. So if there's something that we don't like, we're going to kind of say it nicely. Or we're going to say, well, they could have done it a little bit better. We're just going to give up because the show gave up on being anything other than nonsense uh we heard from noel gardner uh at noel camille pete somebody who may be uh the 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 subject of noel the musical one day that's what Mm -hmm. they do for captains uh noel says trick arrows trick arrows and more trick arrows i love this episode from echo's backstory to clint and kate's rocky communication the scene with nate on the phone had me deep in my feelings i can't believe i might get to see my favorite thor uh what's up the watch pete i'm not quite sure what she means what's up the watch then she uses a watch emoji what which watch well the watch that the tracksuits were looking for Ah, uh and obviously now is that some form of connection to uncle 
Ah, Uncle does like his 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 men's jewelry. Mm-hmm. We hear from Spider Ham Lincoln. That's at Tess LC one three nine. Well, it's just like the MCU to deliver another well crafted episode of Hawkeye, full of action, character development, and unanswered questions. Will Echo be the villain turned hero? Will W F Wilson Fisk make more than a handy appearance? More trick arrows, please. Uh, Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld are a perfect duo. We heard from AMC, that's at Ann Coltonum on Twitter. That makes me think that this could be Ann Coltonum. Uh, this episode of Hawkeye had me laughing so hard. The car chase scene with Kate and the trick arrows was fab. Loved the backstory for Echo. The scene with Kate helping Clint on the phone with his son was very sweet. Looking forward to listening to the podcast. Pete, we also heard from Darren Bell. That's at Darren B46052059, who says, Great trick episode. Uh, great episode. Really enjoyed the action scenes and seeing all the different trick arrows. Also brought me close to tears when Clint spoke to his son on the phone. Uh, we heard from Andre Yeager at Dr. Polo1983. Uh, I'm totally here for Echo. The first eight minutes of this episode had me totally in my feelings. And of course, the introduction of the uncle had me gasping. Only problem I had with this episode was that it was too short. Spider-Ham Lincoln replied and said, yes, too short. Exactly. When it ended, I thought, you mean it's over already? And replying to that was Barton Sam. That's at KCLYLE1 on Twitter. Same. I was shocked when it ended. I mean, the season slash series half over already. We only get six episodes and this doesn't even get to 44 minutes. Boo. Pete, message from the future. When we're all said and done, not counting credits, this show will have been approximately 300 minutes. Wait for it. Um, Yes, this was the shortest yet. That says to me, oh man, there's going to be a 52-minuter and a 58-minuter or something like that towards the the end. If only, Pete, we had an episode that was going to have more top-level Oscar-nominated actors coming in the next three episodes. Oh, wait, we When I was a boy. (laughs) Uh, We heard from BikeBRH. That's at BikeBRH on Twitter. Gotta say that although I thought this was a great episode, I was bummed out that one of my favorite actors was here and gone before the opening credits. After they spent some of the first two episodes laying track, they really let it rip in this one, and I'm here for it. And Pete, the last tweet comes from the aforementioned Barton Stan. That's at KCLYLE1 on Twitter. Holy cow, with the cow emoji. I say bravo. Uh, after two strong episodes, the third was fantastic with a PH. Amazing fight scene and awesome car chase. Seeing what Clint and his arrows are capable of. Again, great to see. The Clint-Kate relationship continues to be great. Love the addition of Echo. This show is running on all cylinders. So enthusiastic. Uh, an enthusiastic ending to our tweets there, Pete. Over to the Fantastic Geek Facebook page, Matt, where Steve Adams writes in, Episode 3 of Hawkeye is my favorite so far. The camera work inside Clint and Kate's car was incredible. And does Vincent D'Onofrio laughing while his hand is on screen count as an official appearance? Uh, Only if it's him. Uh, I think so. Looking forward to next week. Until then, stay fantastic. Pete, it has me wondering here, that comment does, if uh, on the imperfect IMDb, if Vincent D'Onofrio it is, There is no note um, of him having appeared in this production. Wow. Remember, as, as you're noting, one, imperfect, and, and two, 
Um, they do backdate things when they happen. I'm going to go ahead and say that that was not Vincent D'Onofrio's hand, nor the side of his uh, suit, again, on a set with many, many extras. Oh, who's the bald guy? Uh, oh, that's that's TV and, and films Vincent D'Onofrio. Um, yeah, clearly close to the vest here. Uh, doesn't mean that uh, won't, can't be down the road. Hey, little girl, you want to hear about what it was like working with the master uh, Kubrick? No? You want to take some selfies? <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, you're probably... A, you're probably right about that particular scene. B, assuming he's going, assuming that Vincent D'Onofrio for realsies is going to show up, it'll be interesting to see, like, is it shot in a way where maybe, you know, there was a stand-in? Like, you know, or, heck, Pete, I guess we'll we'll know, right? Like, when they do the assembled in yes. the week after, you know, for them to go, oh, it's, it's, it's. February uh, 15th, 2021. I'm just about to head out. Look, I'm wearing a cloak. They said that somebody from the Seinfeld cast wore this when they were in one of these other Marvel <laughs> shows. It's the secret cloak of Cloakerdons. I also heard that a couple sound stages over, Willem Dafoe is wearing a cloak. We're all just wearing cloaks to keep secret. Oh, wait, I can't say about Willem Dafoe. Oh, you know, we'll see, but it's, I don't know. Pete, we got, the, we got Kingpin. We got Yelena. We got these characters that we care about. Life is good. It is. And over on Apple Podcast, Matt, Life is Good, where we have our first three reviews of the Hawkeye podcast by Fantastic Geek. The first written by Dr. Steve T. The subject line, this podcast hits the bullseye, five stars. And it reads, it's the holiday season and whoop-de-whoop. The team at Fantastic Geek is back at it again, bringing their talents to another Marvel series slash show slash movie. Their style is inclusive and thorough. Highly recommend. Well, thank you for those kind words. And I could hear that. I could hear that. I could hear how it was written in the in the style of that Christmas song. So that just adds to the specialness. Jay Killen nine uh, writes in hits the mark five stars. These guys never miss entertaining and engaging feedback with just the right amount of social slash business commentary. No Marvel viewing is complete without checking out this podcast. We we try and reflect the world as it is, whether it's uh, the, the world of diversity that Marvel is increasingly investing in uh, or whether it's business considerations or frankly, you know, uh, other considerations, COVID and so forth, as we try and decode why the episode is as it is. And then 041785 writes, My go-to for all things geek, five stars. If Marvel, Star Wars, or Star Trek make it, I'll be listening to Matt and Pete's take on it. Two thumbs up. Well, thank you for those kind words there. This is, Pete, this is, this is the month, right? December 2021, mm -hmm. where we are podcasting a Marvel show. We're podcasting a Star Trek show. We're podcasting a Star Wars show. Uh, it, it doesn't get any better than this. It gets it gets busy. Life gets busy. Podcasting gets busy. But this is what we signed up for. The great three, the great conjunction. This is it. We had been worried and actually uh, still need a little bit of help on the Apple podcast with your ratings. You know, go on there, hit the number of stars 
uh, it'll pop up. I, I think, Matt, I'm looking at about a 36-hour delay from the time that you do it that it shows up. Because uh, our The Book of Boba Fett podcast by Fantastic Geek subject to a little digital vandalism by some Imperial types uh, and enlisted the help of some bounty hunters, but we could definitely still use a little help over there because right now we're rated at a 3.8 out of 5. I think that's definitely not Fantastic Geek territory. Pete, it's great knowing that when it comes to to pushes of support like the one you're talking about, that uh, that we have such great listeners. This podcast, of course, also supported by those who go to patreon.com slash fantasticgeek, keeping us listener-supported week after week as we dig deep on these episodes. Everybody who contributes gets access to exclusive podcast content. Matt, there are 75 uh, items there for people to check out so plenty of value added it takes just a dollar a month to get you in that door all sorts of levels to uh, choose from to contribute and this being the time of year where all those bills tend to come uh, due really helping us be listener supported and uh, taking care of all our costs and Pete, let's keep the conversation going. How can people talk with you on Twitter about, I guess, primarily Hawkeye, soon to be more Boba Fett, and then Star Trek nonstop? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, -E 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 12,204 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do me a touch the podcast comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Gmail, where we are Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, Pete, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word, like it today. And if you're listening on the Pop Culture Podcast feed, we're back tomorrow for Discovery Episode 403. If you're here just for Hawkeye, we're back next Saturday for Hawkeye 104. Uh, also, on that Pop Culture Podcast feed in the coming weeks, we'll have a uh, final preview for Book of Boba Fett. We'll have uh, some Spider-Man No Way Home. That's going to be fresh, hot off the, hot off the, the griddle there. Uh, and just lots of geeky goodness this month. It's a busy month, like I said, but a good month. With that, Pete, I will say adios to all our listeners and give you the final word. Yeah, I'm in the wrong business. You know